Welcome to Bandcamp. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Dan. And this is a podcast where we read banned books and try to figure out why they were banned in the first place. And this season, we are reading The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. There will absolutely be spoilers ahead because we're literally reading the book out loud. Head on over to Bandcamp Season 4, Episode 1, and you can catch up that way. Then you won't be spoiled. However, if you don't mind being spoiled, let's jump into it. First, we want you to join us over at Instagram. You can follow us at Bandcamp underscore podcast. We'll include the direct link in our show notes. Before Jen starts reading, let's roll them in. Let's introduce the third member of our team, our trusty AI robot, to give us a brief overview of where we left off. Huck and Jim got tangled up with the Duke and the King, two master con artists who transformed a camp meeting into their personal gold mine. Meanwhile, Jen and Dan are still pondering whether Huck and Jim spend their journey in the nude. What happens next? You're about to find out. All right, so with that being said, let's begin The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Chapter 21. It was after sunup now, but we went right on and didn't tie up. The king and the duke turned out by and by looking pretty rusty, but after they jumped overboard and took a swim, it chippered them up a good deal. After breakfast, the king, he took a seat on the corner of the raft and pulled off his boots and rolled up his breeches and let his legs dangle in the water so as to be comfortable and lit his pipe and went to getting his Romeo and Juliet by heart. When he had got it pretty good, him and the Duke begun to practice it together. The Duke had to learn him over and over again how to say every speech, and he made him sigh and put his hand on his heart, and after a while he said he'd done it pretty well. Only, he says, you mustn't bellow out, Romeo, that way, like a bull. You must say it soft and sick and languishly. So, Romeo, that is the idea. For Juliet's a dear, sweet, mere child of a girl, you know, and she doesn't bray like a jackass. Well, next they got out a couple of long swords that the Duke made out of oak laths and begun to practice the sword fight. The Duke called himself Richard III, and the way they laid on and pranced around the raft was grand to see. But by and by, the king tripped and fell overboard, and after that they took a rest and had a talk about all kinds of adventures they'd had in other times along the river. Aha! They do know each other. Oh, good one. Good yep. eye. I was just thinking how ridiculous it is to try to block out an entire play on a small raft while you're going down a river with a wigwam and two naked guys on either end. They didn't have two wigwams? Um, we had an argument about wigwam. I can't say it the way you want me to, but... I had an organ recital at the Wigwam Bar in Kewaskum, Wisconsin. Well, I know that you've got that Wisconsin accent. Maybe that's just part of the Wisconsin accent. Okay, we need someone from Missouri to write in or call in. Ah, that's a good idea. Better better than that. Go to bandcamppodcast.com. You can do it on your phone or the computer. It doesn't matter. In the lower right-hand corner of our website, you will see a little microphone just click on the microphone and tell us how you say wigwam or wigwam. It'll send us a message. Maybe we'll play it on the show, but it's pretty cool. We need someone from Missouri, <laughs> not the dead, not the spirit of Rush Limbaugh, please. If Tony Michaels is listening, <laughs> we're huge Tony Michaels fans. Is it wigwam or wigwam? Yeah, what is it? How do you do it, Tony? 
Oh, yeah, we're worried. Okay. After dinner, the Duke says, well, Caput, we'll want to make this. And Caput, like, I don't know is where Caput he's getting Is Caput a name? Maybe he's trying to say Capulet because it's that's the last name of, it's the Capulets versus the. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, well, Caput, we'll want to make this a first class show, you know. So I guess we'll add a little more to it. We want a little something to answer encores with. Anyway, what's onkers, Bilgewater? <laughs> the Duke told him, and then he says, The answer by doing the Highland Fling or the Sailor's Hornpipe. And you, well, let me see. Oh, I've got it. You can do Hamlet's Soliloquy. Hamlet's which? Hamlet's Soliloquy, you know. The most celebrated thing in Shakespeare. Ah, it's sublime, sublime. Always fetches the house. I haven't got it in the book. I've only got one volume, but I reckon I can piece it out from memory. I'll just walk up and down a minute and see if I can call it back from Recollections Vaults. So he went to marching up and down, thinking and frowning horrible every now and then. Then he would hoist up his eyebrows. Next, he would squeeze his hand on his forehead and stagger back and kind of moan. Next, he would sigh. And next, he'd let on to drop a tear. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin that makes calamity of so long life. For who would Bartles bear till Burnham would do come to Dunsinane? But that the fear of something after death murders the innocent sleep. Great nature's second course, and makes us rather sling the arrows of outrageous fortune than to fly to others that we know not of. There's the respect must give us pause. In the dead waste and middle of the night, when churchyards yawn in customary suits of solemn black, breathes forth contagion on the world, is sicklied o'er with care, and lose the name of action. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, but soft you, the fair Ophelia, ope not thy ponderous and marble jaws, but get thee to a nunnery. Go! <laughs> Go! <laughs> Go! <laughs> well, the old man, he liked the speech, and he mighty soon got it so he could do it first rate. It seemed like he was just born for it. And when he had his hand in and was excited, it was perfectly lovely the way he would rip and tear and rear up behind when he was getting it off. So there is an aspect here where they're actually putting on theater. They're like weird con men that are actually actors. Like if they know all this stuff, they must have studied somewhere. Right. It's kind of cool. I don't know if you would call this a con. Why not just actually do a real production and not con people? I guess you could make more money. I don't know. And plus, you know, you get up and down the river. I bet eventually you'd start to have a name for yourself. This oh, yeah. season, we're doing Romeo and Juliet. Next time we uh, come up the other side, we're going to be doing some other Hamlet, right? Yeah, sure. Ah, the bard. That's what I wanted to say after you read that, Jennifer. Mm. That, That's, that could be their name. The Bards on the Barge. <laughs> Company name. The first chance we got some show bills printed. And after that, for two or three days, as we floated along, the raft was the most uncommon lively place, for there weren't nothing but sword fighting and rehearsing, as the Duke called it, going on all the time. One morning, when we was pretty well down the state of Arkansas, we come in sight of a little one-horse town in a big bend. So we tied up about three quarters of a mile above it, in the mouth of a creek which was shut in like a tunnel by the cypress trees. 
And all of us but Jim took the canoe and went down there to see if there was any chance in that place for our show. We struck it mighty lucky. There was going to be a circus there that afternoon, and the country people was already beginning to come in, in all kinds of old shackly wagons and on horses. The circus would leave before night, so our show would have a pretty good chance. The Duke, he hired the courthouse, and we went around and stuck up our bills. So they are putting on a real show. They are literally paying for the venue and everything. What's their con going to be, I wonder? Well, I want to believe that they've turned a corner, Jennifer. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm sure they're going to screw this little town out for everything it has. You're right. I don't know what it could be. So they struck up our bills. They read like this. Shakespearean revival, wonderful attraction for one night only, the world-renowned tragedians, David Garrick the Younger of Drury Lane Theatre, London, and Edmund Keane the Elder of the Royal Haymarket Theatre, Whitechapel, Pudding Lane, London, and the Royal Continental Theatres in their sublime Shakespearean spectacle entitled The Balcony Scene in Romeo and Juliet. Doesn't Ron DeSantis live over on Pudding Lane? (laughs) According to two sources familiar with the incident, during a private plane flight four years ago, DeSantis enjoyed a chocolate pudding dessert by eating it with three of his fingers. <laughs> On the corner of Pudding Lane and Pastrami Sandwich, the Duke of Pastrami Sandwich. <laughs> do you guys, um, so you do pastrami, corned beef, turkey, well. DeSantis eats like an animal. God, those meat fingers. What is worse, meat fingers or pudding fingers? Or do you think he goes one hand pudding, one hand meat? (laughs) Assisted by the whole strength of the company, new costumes, new scenery, new appointments. Also, the thrilling, masterly, and blood-curdling broadsword conflict in Richard III. Also, in special request, Hamlet's immortal soliloquy by the illustrious Keene. Done by him 300 consecutive nights in Paris for one night only on account of imperative European engagements. Admission, 25 cents. Children and servants, 10 cents. Then we went loafing around town. The stores and houses was most all old, shackly, dried up frame concerns that hadn't ever been painted. They was set up three or four foot above ground on stilts so as to be out of reach of the water when the river was overflowed. The houses had little gardens around them, but they didn't seem to raise hardly anything in them but jimson weeds and sunflowers and ash piles and curled up boots and shoes and pieces of bottle. So garbage gardens? Is that going to be the new trend? (laughs) Garbage gardens? The fences was made of different kinds of boards, nailed on at different times, and they leaned every which way and had gates that didn't have generally but one hinge, a leather one. Some of the fences had been whitewashed in some time or another, but the Duke said it was in Columbus's time. There was generally hogs in the garden and people driving them out. All the stores was along one street. They had white domestic awnings in front, and the country people hitched their horses to the awning posts. There was empty dry goods boxes under the awnings and loafers roosting on them all day long, whittling them with their barlow knives and chewing tobacco and gaping and yawning and stretching, a mighty ornery lot. They generally had on yellow straw hats most as wide as an umbrella, but didn't wear no coats nor waistcoats. They called one another Bill and Buck and Hank and Joe and Andy and talked lazy and drawly and used considerable cuss words. 
There was as many as one loafer leaning up against every awning post, and he most always had his hand in his breeches pockets, except when he fetched them out to lend a chew of tobacco or scratch. What a body was hearing amongst them all the time was this. Give me a chaw but tobacker, Hank. Can't. I hain't got one but chaw left. Ask Bill. Maybe Bill gives him a chaw. Maybe he lies and says he ain't got none. Some of them kinds of loafers never has a cent in the world, nor a chaw of tobacco of their own. They get all their chawing by borrowing. They say to a fellow, I wished you'd lend me a chaw, Jack. I just this minute give Ben Thompson the last chaw I had. So they're not very interesting people. And all they do is stand around chewing tobacco. Pretty nasty. Yeah, they're poor and they like chaw. You give him a chaw, did you? So did your sister's cat grandmother. You pay me back the chaws you've already borrowed often me, Laith Buckner. Then I'll loan you one or two ton of it and won't charge you no back interest nother. Well, I did pay you back some of it once. All the streets and lanes was just mud. They weren't nothing else but mud. Mud as black as tar and nigh about a foot deep in some places, and two or three inches deep in all the places. The hogs loafed and grunted around everywheres. You'd see a muddy sow and a litter of pigs come lazing along the street. On the riverfront, some of the houses was sticking out over the bank, and they was bowed and bent, and about ready to tumble in. The people had moved out of them. The bank was caved away under one corner of some others, and that corner was hanging over. People lived in them yet, but it was dangersome, because sometimes a strip of land as wide as a house caves in at a time. Sometimes a belt of land a quarter of a mile deep will start in and cave along till it all caves into the river in one summer. What, like sinkholes or something? Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, they're living in these houses that are like about to, no, just give way, like a mudslide maybe. Oh. You know, collapse into the river. Such a town as that has to be always moving back and back and back because the river's always gnawing at it. The nearer it got to noon that day, the thicker and thicker was the wagons and horses in the streets, and more coming all the time. Families fetched their dinners with them from the country and eat them in the wagon. There was considerable whiskey drinking going on, and I seen three fights. By and by, somebody sings out, Here comes old Boggs, in from the country for his little old monthly drunk. And here he comes, boys. Oh, Boggs sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> All the loafers looked glad. I reckon they was used to having fun out of bogs. One of them says, Wonder who he's a gwan to chaw up this time. If he'd a chawed up all the men he's been a gwan to chaw up in the last 20 year, he'd have a considerable reputation now. Boggs comes a tearing along in his horse, whooping and yelling like an Indian and singing out, Clare the track thar, I'm on the wall path, and the price of coffins is a gwan to raise. He was drunk and weaving about in his saddle. He was over 50 year old and had a very red face. Everybody yelled at him and laughed at him and sassed him. And he sassed back and said he'd attend to them and lay them out in their regular turns. But he wouldn't wait now because he'd come to town to kill old Colonel Sherburn. And his motto was meat first and spoon vittles to top off on. Okay, so first of all, kudos to a guy. I like it when people have a slogan. Yeah. I don't get this slogan. Meat first and spoon vittles to top off on. I don't understand. There's a lot I don't understand. Apparently Boggs is pissed at Colonel Sherburn. You know what he always <laughs> says, meat first and spoon vittles to top off on. <laughs> he see me and rode up and says, where'd you come from, boy? You prepared to die? Then he rode on. 
I was scared, but a man says, he don't mean nothing. He's always a carrying on like that when he's drunk. He's the best naturedest old fool in Arkansas. Never hurt nobody, drunk nor sober. Boggs rode up before the biggest store in town and bent his head down so he could see under the curtain of the awning and yells, Come on out here, Sherburn. Come out and meet the man you've swindled. You're the hound I'm after, and I'm a one to have you too. And so he went on, calling Sherburn everything he could lay his tongue to, and the whole street packed with people listening and laughing and going on. By and by, a proud-looking man about fifty-five, and he was a heap the best-dressed man in that town, too, steps out of the store, and the crowd drops back on each side to let him come. He says to Boggs, mighty calm and slow, he says, I'm tired of this, but I'll endure it till one o'clock. Till one o'clock, mind, no longer. If you open your mouth against me only once after that time, you can't travel so far, but I will find you. Then he turns and goes in. The crowd looked mighty sober, nobody stirred, and there weren't no more laughing. Oh, so did this turn serious? I thought the whole thing was jovial. Boggs rode off blackguarding Sherburn as loud as he could yell all down the street, and pretty soon back he comes and stops before the store, still keeping it up. Some men crowded around him and tried to get him to shut up, but he wouldn't. They told him it would be one o'clock in about 15 minutes, so he must go home. He must go right away, but it didn't do no good. He cussed away with all his might and throwed his hat down in the mud and rode over it. And pretty soon away he went, a-raging down the street again, with his gray hair a-flying. Everybody that could get a chance at him tried their best to coax him off of his horse so they could lock him up and get him sober, but it weren't no use. Up the street he would tear again, and give Sherburn another cussing. By and by, somebody says, Go for his daughter, quick, go for his daughter. Sometimes he'll listen to her. <laughs> Reminds me of when Ivanka tried to get Trump to stop the insurrection. <laughs> like, didn't, <laughs> didn't, weren't they like, quick, call Ivanka, get him to tweet something. Right. <laughs> he listens to her sometimes. I said that if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. You know? <laughs> so somebody started on a run. I walked down a street a ways and stopped. In about five or ten minutes, here comes Boggs again, but not on his horse. He was a reeling across the street towards me, bareheaded, with a friend on both sides of him, a holt of his arms, and hurrying him along. He was quiet and looked uneasy, and he weren't hanging back any, but was doing some of the hurrying himself. Somebody sings out, Boggs. I looked over there to see who said it, and it was that Colonel Sherburn. He was standing perfectly still in the street and had a pistol raised in his right hand, not aiming it, but holding it out with the barrel tilted up toward the sky. The same second I see a young girl coming on the run and two men with her. Boggs and the men turned around to see who called them, and when they see the pistol, the men jump to one side and the pistol barrel come down slow and steady to a level, both barrels cocked. Boggs throws up both of his hands and says, Oh, Lord, don't shoot. Bang goes the first shot, and he staggers back, clawing at the air. Bang goes the second one, and he tumbles backwards onto the ground, heavy and solid, with his arms spread out. Is it, did, that, did he just die? Did he just kill Boggs in front of his daughter? In front of everybody, with his hands raised, saying, Don't shoot? God. He's a nuisance, but does that mean you kill him? I don't, I don't get it. That young girl screamed out and comes rushing, and down she throws herself on her father, crying and saying, Oh, he's killed him. He's killed him. The crowd closed up around them. 
and shouldered and jammed one another with their necks stretched, trying to see, and people on the inside trying to shove them back and shouting, Back, back, give him air, give him air. Colonel Sherburne, he tossed his pistol onto the ground and turned around on his heels and walked off. Wow. Tough guy. Jeez. They took Boggs to a little drugstore, the crowd pressing around just the same, and the whole town following, and I rushed and got a good place out the window, where I was close to him and could see in. They laid him on the floor and put one large Bible under his head and opened another one and spread it on his breast. And they tore open a shirt first, and I seen where one of the bullets went in. He made about a dozen long gasps, his breast lifting the Bible up when he drawed in his breath and letting it down again when he breathed it out. And after that, he laid still. He was dead. Then they pulled his daughter away from him, screaming and crying, and took her off. She was about 16 and very sweet and gentle looking, but awful pale and scared. Well, pretty soon the whole town was there, squirming and scrouging and pushing and shoving to get out the window to have a look. But people that had the places wouldn't give them up, and folks behind them was saying all the time, Say now, you've looked enough, you fellows. Tain't right and tain't fair for you to stay there all the time and never give nobody a chance. Other folks has their rights as well as you. Jeez, that's disgusting gruesome yeah God. although i heard like there used to be a thing where people really and when there was a murder the whole town would come and look at the whatever it was like i actually heard they would make like murder ballads they would sing songs about murders that took place they would charge admission really yes who would get the money here let me look this up really quick with the, the like i guess some of the remaining family members but the um, daughter doesn't seem like if she's in any place to like, hey, I got to get some cash out of this. I'm going to start to charge tickets. I think that poople, poople, poople. <laughs> I just think that people are amazed at just the grotesque. There was this one in North Carolina where this father killed his entire family, like an old fashioned family annihilator. And people were oh. like walking through the house and some of them were like taking pieces of the fruitcake that the daughter had baked. <laughs> like they were having a little snack while they were watching the show. God. I know. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. That's even more gross. I got a buddy who collected pieces of the Hindenburg. But I got to tell you, taking a dead gal's <laughs> fruitcake, that's right up there, man. The Lawson family. 1929. And this is one of the ones where they made like <laughs> a song out of it. Really? Here, here they are, the Carolina Buddies. You think I'm making this up? They made ballads. I what they sing about. Come on. Very good. Good intro. It's not an artistic endeavor. <laughs> you guys get to the point. <laughs> yeah, we want to know. We want to know about the murders. Okay, stop this. Okay, very good. I'd imagine it goes on for what, another 15 minutes? It's half done. It's half done. Well, see, this is though, but this just proves this is why true crime podcasts are so popular. People were always interested in like, why would this happen? What happened? It's fascinating to people. All right. There was considerable jawing back. So I slid out thinking maybe there was going to be trouble. The streets was full and everybody was excited. Everybody that seen the shooting was telling how it happened. 
and there was a big crowd packed around each one of those fellows, stretching their necks and listening. One long, lanky man with long hair and a big white fur stovepipe hat on the back of his head and a crooked-handled cane marked out the places on the ground where Bog stood and where Sherburn stood, and the people following him around from one place to the other and watching everything he'd done and bobbing their heads to show they understood and stooping a little and resting their hands on their thighs to watch him mark the places on the ground with his cane. And then he stood up straight and stiff where Sherburn had stood, frowning and having his hat brim down over his eyes and stung out bogs and then fetched his cane down slow to a level and says bang, staggering backwards and says bang again. Who is this? The, the detective? Maybe he's plotting out how he's going to write his murder ballad. Yes, so <laughs> walk through the steps slowly, says bang again, and fell down flat on his back. The people that had seen the thing said he'd done it perfect, and it was just exactly the way it all happened. Then as much as a dozen people got out their bottles and treated him, well, by and by, somebody said Sherburn ought to be lynched. In about a minute, everybody was saying it, so away they went, mad and yelling, and snatching down every clothesline they come to to do the hanging with. End of chapter. Wow, that end of chapter really snuck up on me. Unbelievable. Talk about after you put all this effort into putting on a big play where you're going to be doing Romeo and Juliet. And I know. somebody comes and takes all the uh, the attention away. Huh. Yeah, yeah, no, I thought this was going to be they roll into town, do a couple of plays and scam the people. Although, what are they going to get out of these people? Some chaw? Gross. <laughs> it's time for PPP, problematic points to ponder. What, if anything, would be considered banworthy in this chapter? There's nothing in this chapter that could be banworthy. I don't even know if the N-word was said, maybe one N-word or two. It came up one time, yes. The violence, although, I mean, you know, as we said many times, we seem to be fine with the violence. Right. Nothing in this could be considered banworthy. Let us know on Instagram if you think something in this chapter could be banworthy. But honestly, I can't think about anything at all. All right. We've caused enough literary chaos for today. Thank you for listening, scary book people. You can find us on Instagram at Bandcamp underscore podcast, where you can connect with fellow scary book people, join in the polls and discussions, and you can vent about the evils of book banning. And we really do hope you join our community. We'd love to see you there and engage with you. Bandcamp is produced and hosted by Dan Schultz and me, Jennifer Davis. All media used in this production was done so under the protection of fair use. And we'll see you next time, everybody.